With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, August 2nd, 2013. This week, episode 294 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Joining me at the controls is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender. Hi, everyone. And we're running a little behind because of technical problems. And hopefully joining me from our McKees Rock Studio C is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. I'm here, Joe. Can you hear me? I got you. Beautiful. All right. We got the Z-Man, Dr. Dietrich Wow, Our technical director will be joining us a little later in the show. Today's segments include, we've got a, an interesting interview today. We're going we're gonna to talk about water activity. Brady Carter is here. He's the lead research scientist at Decagon Devices, Inc. Of course, we'll have our halftime. Uh, we have our IAQ radio trivia question first. We'll do the interview. We'll go to halftime. And then at the end of the show, we'll bring in the doctor with our roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And we should mention that back is Indoor Environment Connections, IE Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. You can get information or read now online at ieconnections.com. And let's also make sure we thank uh, the IAQ Training Institute. Uh, check out the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's move it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submit your answer is very easy. Either email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To IAQ, Susan Valenti, for being first person to uh, identify the term Pascal as the metric measurement unit of pressure, which serves as the base standard international unit of pressure named for a French mathematician, physicist, and philosopher. The IAQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, August 2nd, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. 
Triska is happy, uh, very excited about partnering with IEQ Training for uh, summer break at Indian Lake. Go to the IEQ Training Institute website. You can get more information on this great event, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the Australian scientist who in the 1950s suggested that microbial growth was dependent on water activity and not moisture content. Back to you, Joe. Oh, good one. I don't even know that one. I don't know if Brady knows that one. We'll find out. All right, listen, uh, folks, Brady Carter's here with us this week. He is the lead research scientist at Decacon, Decagon Devices, Inc. He provides scientific application and technical support to the customers, and he oversees the product's technology, development, and testing in the area of complete moisture analysis. Prior to starting work at Decagon, he was an assistant professor scientist at Washington State University in wheat quality research. He graduated summa cum laude from Weber State University in 1997 and was a bachelor's degree in botany and chemistry. Also has a master's degree in serial chemistry from Washington State. He has written numerous journals, articles, trade articles, etc., and has pioneered work on determining glass transitions using dynamic isotherms. He has also given numerous presentations about water activity, moisture sorption isotherms, and complete moisture analysis at professional meetings and venues around the world. I think we have some music. Well, there's a hole in the roof where the rain pours in. A hole in the floor where it runs right out again. Well, there's a leak. There's a leak. In this old building. There's a leak. Well, there's a leak. Well, there's a leak. Well, Val found a different version of or clipped it. If there's a leak in this old building, Brady, do we have you on? I'm here. All right, welcome. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for dealing with the technical issues we had here. We're getting a little late start, but let's start out right off the bat. What's water activity? What is this? water activity thing, Brady? That's a a great question to start out with. Um, Water activity uh, is a measure of, uh, very simply put, is a measure of the energy of water, um, as opposed to a quantitative measure of the amount of water, like moisture content. Uh, Water activity actually tells what the energy of that water is. So it's it's a thermodynamic concept. Um, It's typically measured by uh, looking at vapor pressures, very closely related to relative humidity, something that's that's typically measured and well-known um, in, the, in the clean air and, and building industry. Um, but in this case, it's actually the relative humidity of the water inside of a product as opposed to just the environment. So it's measured in equilibrium conditions, and it tells you uh, exactly what the water is doing uh, inside of a product as opposed to how much is actually there. Now, you mentioned vapor pressures, and I, you know, I'm always trying to find better ways to describe things. How, how do we describe what vapor pressure is, and how is the vapor pressure of water in a material? I mean, can you describe what's going on there? Sure. So, and it kind of requires to go back to, to the origins of where water activity comes from, and it's derived from, uh, from the second law of thermodynamics, um, which tells us that there's a conservation of energy. And that if you want to find any, the energy of any kind of material, and in this case water, then you need to look at how readily does it escape. How, what's its ability to be able to escape from the food? So if you imagine water in, sitting inside of a food or a, or a building material or, or wood or, or wallboard or whatever you're, you're looking at, um, if you want to know what the energy of that water is, what you need to find out is how easily can it actually escape from the material and go into the vapor state. Um, the higher the energy, the more likely or the higher the probability is that that material is going to be able to escape. And so if I were to take that material and put it in an enclosed system where it's sealed and just let it sit there over time, that the, the water molecules that do have enough energy are going to actually escape and, and get out of the material and escape into the, the atmosphere around it. And if it's sealed, then they don't have anywhere to go except into that, the, the small contained space. And in that space, while they're, uh, they're in the, the vapor state or above the sample, they're going to exert a certain amount of pressure. And that's what we call vapor pressure. So it's just the pressure that's being exerted 
by the number of water molecules that can actually escape or have enough energy to escape out of the material and be up into that headspace. The higher the energy of the water in the material, the more number of water molecules that can be up in the vapor state, and hence the higher the vapor pressure that's above that sample. And so vapor pressure is a more correct way of being able to see exactly what that energy is. We translate that into a relative humidity by taking whatever that vapor pressure is and dividing it by what the vapor pressure would be of pure water or the saturated vapor pressure. And if you think about a, a psychometric chart, um, you, can, you can look at things like dew point temperature and use that chart to figure out what the pressure is being exerted um, at that particular temperature based upon what that dew point temperature is. Or in other words, the, when you're talking about pure water, what the vapor pressure is is dictated completely by temperature. Um, and so you can figure that out. If you know the temperature of the water, you, you can calculate or figure out from a psychometric chart what exactly that vapor pressure would be. Call that the saturated vapor pressure. And if we compare what the vapor pressure would be over any particular material, again, measured when it's in a confined space, we allow it to come to equilibrium, meaning there's no net change in the number of water molecules up in the vapor state. If we measure what that pressure is and compare it to what the vapor pressure would be if we were dealing with pure water, that's where we get our water activity. Hmm. All right. So the the vapor, the water, the I, I call it bound water. I don't know. That's something I got from a Bill Rose book. But anyway, it's it's bound in materials. There's energy that causes it to escape, and we have this closed area. Does the I assume there's a back and forth of some type. So some of the vapor may go back into the material. That's right. So Water, a molecule of water, if you think about a single molecule of water, it's, it's never staying put. It's, it's in a constant state of flux in terms of its energy. So um, it's moving out into the vapor phase, and then it's losing its energy, and it's coming back in, and it's moving out, and it's moving around inside the sample. But that's why we look at a macroscopic view of what's going on. And so equilibrium, and we, we, we have to reach that in order to measure vapor pressure. But what, how you actually define equilibrium is that there's no net change over time. So that means that one water molecule comes out uh, into the vapor phase because it has enough energy, and at the same time, one's going back in because it's lost that kinetic energy. So there's no net change in the number of water molecules at any point in time that are up in the vapor phase. And so then we can measure vapor pressure because we're in a steady state situation, even though the water molecules themselves are constantly changing. I see. So the steady state um, is related in some, to some degree or maybe entirely on the temperature of the, the materials and the temperature of the air? Is that, does it make sense? It, it, it is related to the temperature. And if we were dealing with just pure water that was inside of our container, then it would be completely dependent upon the temperature because that's what dictates the saturated vapor pressure. But when you're dealing with something other than water, temperature is playing a role. But what else is happening is that there's all kinds of, of, of things or or compounds inside of those materials that like to interact with water, and we call those polar molecules. So um, if you think about it in terms of food, a great example is, you know, anciently they figured out that if you salt foods and, and store them in salt or brine them um, and get them uh, infused with salt, that you could preserve them. Well, that's because when that salt gets in there, it interacts with the water um, through different types of interactions. We call that bonding. And when those bonding uh, when that bonding happens, it it uh, holds those water molecules, reduces their energy, the ones that are interacting with it, and so they can't escape in the vapor phase. And so you you have what appears to be a drop in the vapor pressure over one of those samples at a given temperature versus what it would be for pure water. So there's a temperature aspect, but what's really driving it is what is happening with the water inside the material. Is it has something that it can interact with? that will cause it to be have its energy reduced that's where that term bound comes from that you were talking about and, mm -hmm. and i don't use that a lot and and that's because it doesn't really have any scientific meaning so people throw that term around without really understanding what it means and so that's why we try and stay away from it but if you think about it in terms of energy that if the material finds something inside or if water finds something inside of the material that it likes that's polar that it wants to interact with then it becomes bound with that in the sense that its energy has been reduced and that water is not going to be able to escape into the vapor phase. So it's both temperature and what is actually in the material itself. Okay. Cliff, let me turn one over to you. Okay. Um, 
I think what I'd like to do is in what industries is water activity important? Okay. So, you know, where water activity has its its most, um, let's say, acceptance or understanding at this point would probably be in the food industry. And the reason why is because um, since, and referencing back to your trivia question, since the 50s, um, it's been known that water activity uh, and is what actually controls microbial growth. And so if you want to make sure that a food um, is not going to get somebody sick, since it's something that we're ingesting and taking in, they came up with this term called potentially hazardous foods. And these are foods that have been identified that, um, that they, if you don't have some sort of a time temperature control, or in other words, you refrigerate them, that they, they can spoil and they can support the growth of, of pathogenic bacteria. Um, bacteria that are going to make you sick, your, your E. coli, your salmonella, your botulism, all of these, the, the bad bugs that you could potentially eat. And so from uh, very early on, water activity became uh, uh, an integral part of the regulations for production of food, that if you had a product whose water activity was lower than a certain value, and that was set at about 0.85 water activity, if you were below that, then you weren't uh, considered to be, or your food that you're making wasn't potentially hazardous. It, couldn't, it wouldn't get somebody sick, um, assuming that you had good manufacturing practices to go along with that. And so then it became very integrated in the food industry. And, and Decagon, when we started measuring water activity um, about 20, 25 years ago, that's the industry that we targeted initially because, again, it was built right into the regulations. And so that's, that's where it's most commonly used, but, but the concepts and the principles that wa- uh, water activity uh, apply for water activity in terms of microbial spoilage, and it's also related to reaction rates. Uh, as your water activity goes up, it speeds up any reactions that could occur. It's related to textural qualities. It's, it's what controls moisture migration between uh, different materials. Um, and those principles apply in any kind of industry where uh, you're manufacturing a product. And so... Uh, one of the areas that we, we moved into was the pharmaceutical industry, where they also have to make sure that products are safe. Um, they're going to be ingested in a lot of cases. And so uh, that industry was very focused on and has been very focused on, again, moisture content being the, the measure of moisture. But, in fact, it's water activity that actually determines whether those products are safe. And so there was regulations that were developed very, fairly recently, uh, as, as recent as 2006, um, that allowed for the use of water activity in the pharmaceutical industry. And so we're moving through industries, but it's a lot of education that has to happen uh, for people to be able to understand that those principles that have been applying in the food industry for 50 years also apply to any other industry that you're dealing with. Hmm. Now, Thank you. Brady, in, in the past and, and up, even today, I have seen in the water damage industry and in the mold remediation industry Water activity has been described as approximately equal to the equilibrium relative humidity at the surface of a material. So mm-hmm. I guess we're, we're saying that we, we put a you know, thermal hygrometer, that me- some, some instrument that measures relative humidity at the surface, and then kind of cover that up with plastic and tape or whatever to kind of separate that packet of air from the packet of air in the rest of the room. Is that somewhat accurate? Yeah, it is. It's it's um, it's a good description of what's going on. So you could have a, a sensor in a room measuring relative humidity, which is fine. Um, it's me- but it, what it's really measuring is is what what kind of water vapor is there in the environment. And and it's certainly possible that within a room you could have a, a portion of the wall that's that's very wet, wet enough that the water activity again is high enough to support mold growth. But your relative humidity in your room could be just fine. It's being tip, uh, mostly controlled by your, your HVAC system and, and not necessarily by what's going on in the wall. And so if you want to get in and find out what's actually going on in, in the building material, whatever it may be, in the wood, in the wallboard, if you want to actually find out what's going on in that, then you have to get down right at the surface and, and be able to figure out what the relative humidity is at that surface. And, it, and an equilibrium relative humidity, that being the key term equilibrium, is the same thing as water activity. So those two things are the same thing. But the relative humidity of the room is not water activity because, first of all, you're not in a state, you're not in a sealed system, so you can't reach equilibrium. But the second is that that's being controlled by the conditions in the room. So that's temperature combined with the amount of water vapor in the air. 
that's not necessarily going to tell you that something's going on in the room without getting down on the surface and measuring what's going on there. So the term uh, equilibrium relative humidity at the surface or even the term surface water activity is, is a good description of what you would actually measure. Okay. Cliff, do you have another one you want me to follow? No, you can go, sir. All right, let's take it a step further then. Um, and, and I want to talk about your instrument, but probably a little more in the second half. I want to kind of set this up and then go into the second half and talk a little bit more about the instruments that Decagon is developing for measuring water activity for our industry, which is the indoor air quality and water damage restoration and building science, folks. But, but before I do, let me get a couple basics. With respect to the amount of water activity it takes to support mold growth let's start with mold i have mm -hmm. seen references from you know like uh aiha the american industrial hygiene association and um the in institute for inspection cleaning and restoration certification i believe ashray may have some but basically it seems to be at about 0.67 0 0.70 but i've never and you you kind of made me think about this in a little different way is that does that somewhat accurate in your experience, but what material would that be, and would it make a big difference? That's uh, it's a great question, and and those numbers are pretty close to where the cutoff is. Um, most types of molds will stop growing at 0.7 water activity. Um, if you get lower than that, you've stopped pretty much all. There are some xerophilic molds that will grow at a little bit lower uh, water activity, but we, we would call 0.7 sort of the practical limit, that if you can get below that, um, almost all mold species have been stopped or their growth has been stopped. And, and it doesn't, it's not a matter of material of, of uh, whether that's the growth limit. It's that simply is the growth limit, no matter what kind of media you're dealing with. Um, that's the growth limit. And that's because when they were established, they were established, those growth limits were established with everything else being ideal. So in other words, your nutrient availability, your pH, your temperature, everything else was as it, as it should be optimally for the growth of every organism. And then all that was changed then was the water activity to try and find where that minimum level is. And so those values that are reported in the literature, you can find them on our website uh, for each of the, and we, we even break it down by each of the, the species of, of uh, molds, the species of, of pathogenic bacteria, yeasts. Um, those numbers represent the worst case scenario or the minimum levels where they will grow. So they would actually, there's a possibility that, that you could not have growth at even higher water activities if you combine the effects. And we call that hurdle technology. Um, it's the basis behind in the food industry, they have something called HACCP or hazardous analysis and critical control points, where you build in these sort of hurdles to try and prevent microbial growth, where if you can combine the effects of water activity with say pH um, and, you know, you can preserve things with pH, things that are pickled are preserved through pH. But if you combine their effects, then you can, uh, that you can stop growth. So the other thing that, that you have to consider then is nutrient availability. And not every kind of material is going to provide the nutrients that are required for a microorganism to grow. So if you combine that effect with water activity, there is a chance that the growth is going to not happen, um, you know, down at 0.7. Uh, or even the typical water activity for that microorganism. But those limits that are set, again, they, they represent the, act, the, the absolute minimum water activity where those microorganisms will grow, assuming that everything else is ideal um, for their growth. I see. Brady, is there a maximum water activity? Um, the, well, the, as, as far as scale and, and what you can actually have, the water activity of water is one. So that's the upper portion of the scale because they would be the vapor pressures would be the same if you were dealing with water. Um, as far as growth of microorganisms, there there is there are upper limits to where they will not thrive anymore, and there's a couple reasons for that. Um, those haven't been as as closely established as the lower limits because that's what you're typically interested in. But as you get to higher water activities, um, then you start to deal with competition because you have microorganisms who are who uh, preferentially will grow at that level. Um, and so through competition for nutrients and, uh, and, and uh, uh, the availability of the water, um, you, you would have other organisms who may grow optimally at lower water activity whose growth will be stopped just because of competition. The other thing that can happen at very high water activities, 
a lot of microorganisms don't like to be in those kind of conditions because their cells will lice. They can't handle that much uh, water coming in and, and the, the pressure builds so high in the organism that it, it essentially just breaks apart. So yes, there is upper limits to where they can actually grow, um, but we're typically dealing with those lower limits. Do the fungi have lower upper limits than the bacteria, and I realize there's you know a million species of each, but just in a, in a general sense. Well, they they do in the and because when you get up into you know the the water activities above 0.90, um, that's where you start to to get in where bacteria are preferentially growing, and so just through competition, um, they aren't gonna they may have a less of a uh, a propensity to grow at those high water activities, but they can still grow. You know, at, at very high water activity conditions, um, and and may grow more optimally than they would um, at their lower limit. Their lower limit is, you know, you're reaching the edge of where they can actually grow. So that isn't going to be their optimal growth. That's just going to be the lower limit where they actually will grow. So uh, if there's if there's no competing species there, they still will grow as happy as can be at very high water activities. And so you get a you know you get a really wet uh, wallboard from a leak. Um, the likelihood that bacteria is going to come into contact with that isn't as high, nearly as high, obviously, as as uh, mold spores, uh, which are just ubiquitous. So uh, the chances still are going to be that you're going to get mold growth, even if you've got really high water activity conditions. I see. And let me get one more in before we go to halftime here. Um, we got started a little bit late, so I want to break a little bit late for halftime. But how long, under optimal conditions does it take for fungi probably let's say the fastest growing fungi to actually start to reproduce well they can start immediately it 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 is a combination of of what are the conditions that it's exposed to and you can spend uh, there's lots of work that's been done to try and and model what those growth rates are for different microorganisms but and of course what they found from those is that it's very dependent on the conditions that it's being exposed to and you can come up with with growth models um, that include what's your water activity, what's your temperature, what's your pH, um, what is your the availability of certain nutrients, and and combine those values and and plug in whatever value you're dealing with, and and from your model figure out what the rate of growth would be for your microorganism under those conditions. But in under optimal conditions, uh, you know the the microorganisms go through several stages of growth, um, and they have an initial stage, and then they have a growth stage, and and under ideal conditions, the initial stage is very short, and then the growth stage, um, the slope of that is very, very steep, and so they can reproduce to high numbers uh, in a very short amount of time if the conditions are right. That can all, the, but that will all be delayed, and that's one of the things that water activity does. As you lower water activity, the slope, if you will, of that growth curve starts to reduce, um, which then effectively uh, results in there not being enough. Uh, growth that you would notice anything happening because you've controlled water activity. So, so we commonly hear, and EPA, for instance, has recommendations to dry water damaged areas in 24 to 48 hours to prevent mold growth. It, it it's accurate to say mold growth can occur as quickly as 24 to 48 hours. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Okay, I'm. I'm just. You just made me a happy man, Brady. I'll tell you, I've seen some articles that just. I couldn't believe they would write this, and then people would actually accept it. That you know, it takes months, and it just you know weeks or whatever. Yes, yeah, sometimes it takes that long. I assume for you to see right. growth, you know. Uh, but uh, you really made me a happy guy. Anyway, let's turn to halftime. We'll be back for the second half of our interview, a great interview, actually, with Brady Carter. He's the lead research scientist at Decagon Devices, and uh, we're talking water activity today. Great show. We'll be right back. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization 
dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview with Brady Carter out of Decagon Devices. He's their lead research scientist. We're talking water activity. Brady, let me ask another one, and then I want to give Cliff a chance. Okay, I've seen um, curves. I believe it was in the AIHA Green Book, and it would show that, you know, as a building material is getting wetter, it, and I hope I have this right, um, it's more conducive to microbial growth than once it hits the peak and starts down the other side and we start the drying. Is that somewhat accurate to say? Uh, it depends if you're measuring, if what you're tracking is moisture content, uh, then yes, that's true. Okay. Um, and, and the reason why is because uh, when uh, materials wet, they well, they wet and they dry differently, and that's called hysteresis. And uh, at a given moisture content, let's say you were tracking moisture content, and this this all this information is all contained in what we call a moisture sorption isotherm, which is the relationship between water activity and moisture content for any kind of material. It's unique to each type of material, has a, has a very unique shape. It's not linear. Um, and what can happen is that if you were to, say, track moisture content and you, you were able to look at one of these isotherm curves, what you'd find out is that that moisture content during drying is associated with a lower water activity than it is when it's wetted. And so if all you were doing was tracking moisture content, you wouldn't be able to see that. Now, if you were tracking water activity, it would make complete sense because when the building was wetting up and you were tracking water activity, you'd see exactly the point at which the, the organism could start to grow. You wouldn't even care what the moisture content was. You'd just be tracking water activity. So you, it wouldn't affect, uh, it, it wouldn't impact what you were doing because you would be basing it off of water activity. But if you were trying to do that with moisture content, then if you wet it up to a certain moisture content, there would be, uh, it would be more susceptible to growth just simply because that particular moisture content during adsorption, what we call wetting up or adsorption, would be associated with a higher water activity then that same moisture content would be during the drying process. Ah, you just put a light bulb off in my head there. Okay, because unfortunately we're stuck, at least up until now, with measuring moisture content or trying to guess at you know equilibrium relative humidity. And I'm sure that's what they meant. I'm sure they were referring to moisture content. And because, and just maybe for listeners and for you as well, I mean, when people were drying buildings, you know, it might take three to five days to actually get back to the moisture content level you are trying for. And I've always wondered, well, you know, if, if we stop, you know, if we get started at the drying in 48 hours, 24 to 48 hours, you know, why on that third and fourth day, even though the moisture content appears to be high enough to support mold growth, we don't see the mold growth. Right. Okay. And that's because of what you just explained. Yep. The water activity is not there. All right. Now, how do we, how do you at Decagon measure water activity? Can you, can you go into the, the science behind the instruments that you guys manufacture there? And if you want to start with the food type and then kind of work over to what you're uh, going into now, that's fine, whatever way you'd like. Okay, great. So 
the way that we um, that we measure water activity for sort the 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 well food industry, but also any industry, um, using a benchtop instrument. So this is where you would take a sample of a material um, and put it into a cup and put it in the instrument and and make a measurement on what the water activity is of that product. So if it was a large product, you would take a sampling of it. You take a portion of it. So and you could potentially do this for any kind of material, a building material as well. You could cut out portions of, and we've done this, of drywall and, and put it in this cup and measure it this way or, or wood products or whatever. But, again, this isn't an in-situ or an in-place test. This is one that you take to a benchtop instrument. And the way that it works is that you take that sample, put it inside of, this, of the instrument. It's a, a clamshell lid that comes down. You close the lever, and what that does is seal up that, uh, that, the, the chamber where your sample is being held. So it's all sealed, it's temperature controlled, um, and typically we control that to, to 25C. And then the sample is allowed, once it's in there, now it's, gonna, it's in a sealed uh, chamber, so now any water vapor that has enough energy to escape into the vapor phase is going to start to escape, and over time it's going to come to equilibrium, and there's a time that's associated with that, and, it's, and again, that's going to be specific to every kind of material of how long that process actually takes. And what we do is, while that's happening, we're taking measurements all the time and checking them against the ones that were taken uh, previous to make to see when there's the the change has stopped. And when the change has stopped, when nothing's changing anymore, that's an indication that we have steady state or equilibrium. And then we can take a measurement. And what we're measuring is it's back to those those principles that we talked about at the first. What we need to find out in order to know water activity is two things. One is the vapor pressure above the sample. And the second is the vapor pressure of pure water. And if we and then compare those, we get our water activity or our equilibrium relative humidity. And so the way that we figure out the vapor pressure of water is all we have to do is measure the, the temperature of the sample that we're, we're measuring. And if we know that temperature, again, we can go to the psychometric chart or we have calculations that we can do that based upon that temperature will tell us what the water, the vapor pressure of water would be or the saturated vapor pressure. So that's our denominator that we need. Then to get the numerator, what we do is, and this, again, this is finding the vapor pressure over the particular sample. We're going to measure the dew point temperature of that atmosphere or that chamber. And by knowing what the dew point temperature is, that's an indication of what the vapor pressure is, the dew point temperature being dictated by whatever the vapor pressure is. So we have inside of that chamber a mirror uh, that we chill down until dew forms. Um, and then we measure the temperature at which that dew forms. Again, the temperature where that happens, or the dew point temperature, will be dictated by the vapor pressure inside that chamber. So by knowing the dew point temperature, we can then calculate what the vapor pressure is of the sample, divide that by the vapor pressure of, of water, or the saturated vapor pressure, again, that we got from the sample's temperature, and then you have uh, water activity. So that's how the instrument works. Hmm. Um, and, and it's looking for, again, equilibrium to figure out when the test ends. It puts up on the screen water activity and the temperature at which it was measured. Okay. And now you have a device where you can do this rather than on a bench top. You can take it out in the field. That's right. So, um, so the other way that you can measure water activity, of course, is inside that sealed chamber. If you had an RH sensor in there and measured the relative humidity, that would be the equilibrium relative humidity, which, again, is the same thing as water activity. So the concept that we're, we've created for the, uh, the, the, the clean air and building industry is a sensor that you could a attach onto a material, whatever it may be, and it could be wallboard, could be uh, a wood, um, cement board, whatever it may be, but you would attach this sensor and it has a rubber seal on it, and so it seals against the, the material, creates a sealed system or a sealed chamber, um, and then it's just a matter of waiting a, uh, a certain amount of time um, for that to come to equilibrium and then measuring what the equilibrium relative humidity is inside of that confined space or that, that sealed space. And that will provide what the water activity is uh, of that material, the surface water activity of that material. And it's going to track independently of what the relative humidity of the room would be. And, and our system is set up in two different ways. It can either be attached to a, uh, a handheld device that will, will ping it at any given time and tell you exactly what the reading is at that point in time. Um, that's, that's one way of doing it. The other is that these sensors can all be attached to a central logging system 
uh, which then logs data over time and tracks what's happening with, uh, at the point where those sensors have been installed um, and then uh, <clears throat> can be downloaded to a software program that then tracks what's happened with those sensors over time. I see. And you've got, like, I, I'm looking at one of your um, sensors now. and You guys were kind enough to send me some to play with here, and I wish I had played more with them, but I was kind of like, well, let's do the interview, and then I'll have a better idea of how to play with them. And um, they are basically what maybe about a, an inch, a circle that's about an inch with that rubber um, seal, I guess. And then you've got a like a one-inch by three-inch piece of white plastic over top of that, and I assume there's some kind of thermal hygrometer, for lack of a better term. I don't know whether that's what you guys use or not inside there that's kind of measuring that equilibrium relative humidity to some degree that's right okay and it's a it's 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 a polymer-based rh sensor um that's inside of there plus a temperature sensor and and that's exactly right inside that that plastic housing is a is a, a sensor that's measuring the equilibrium relative humidity and the temperature um at the point at which the the measurement's taken very cool okay and the, and then I, I assume you obviously have to have some kind of software that um, you know helps you take this information and and make it into something that's you know useful for the people out in the field where where do you guys see the um, growth of the sales of this product what what types of people are you looking to get this out to well, uh, you know, uh, the first target is uh, an obvious place to go would be for remediation. And the reason why these would be important for that is that, that they provide the ability to be able to, to actually track and watch the drying process. So you've set up, um, you know, your systems to start drying out a room that's, that's had some leaks or damage. Um, when is it dry enough to, to stop that process? And and typically that may be done with a moisture meter of some sort or just based on time or maybe even the relative humidity of the room. But again, this, the difference here is that, that these sensors can be applied right to the area where the damage was and track exactly when the water activity of that material has been reduced where it's not going to support mold growth anymore. And, and if, depending on the size of the area would dictate the number of sensors that you'd want. But the, the beauty is that you could go in with this system and, and set it up in the area that's being remediated and put it into the central logging system. And we even have versions of that logger that through cell technology, that information can, can be accessed from your computer at your office and track exactly what's happening in, in the room that's being remediated and know exactly when that the process is finished, when you're dry enough uh, because it's not going to support any kind of mold growth. And so it can track it over time as opposed to a, a one-time kind of test. But but there are versions of that where you could do that. The other place where um, we see this as being a possibility is, is in building health and tracking um, the conditions of, of new types of buildings, especially these, uh, these the green buildings that are starting to come out, mm -hmm. um, where you want to be able to know exactly what's going on uh, inside the building, have control over the HVAC system through tracking what's happening with these sensors, um, and, the, and there's even the possibility of, of, you know, linking this data into an HVAC control system, um, that the some more sophisticated ones that are now being developed. But you could set these up in areas that are not, you know, in, in kind of behind-the-scenes types of situations and then link them up to a logging system that's then connected to a, the control system for one of these buildings and know exactly what's going on. You, you'd probably target into, you know, some, some potential trouble areas where, uh, there's the potential, the largest potential for leaks, and you'd be able to figure out exactly if if a leak had started, it would, you know, put up an alarm because the the sensors would start to read very high water activity, and that would give an indication that there's a problem. So that's really where we see these as as being helpful um, in the in, in this industry. And again, it is a new industry for us, so we're still learning, but that's kind of where we've targeted them. Brady, you know, on your website you have this nifty looking little meter. I think that you call the pocket. Uh, would that be useful um, if in the remediation market as well? It, it could be, and it, it is meant to be portable. That's kind of its biggest um, claim to fame as far as our instruments. It also tends to be the least expensive, but it, its purpose was to be um, an inspection tool. So somebody was able to take this instrument into a facility and, and take a spot check. Now, the one thing about that instrument is it does require a sample cup, which means you'd have to take a sample from some material and put it into a cup and then measure it. 
um, as opposed to being able to measure in place. Uh, so that's that's the the one uh, area where it might not be helpful if you want to try to do in place. But if you had a a sample of material that you needed that you could actually uh, extract and wanted to know its water activity, that would certainly be a very uh, a tool that could be useful for doing that. Thank you. Now, let me maybe I can summarize what what I think I'm uh, you know I'm learning here, and that would be that. And you tell me if I'm I'm right or not on this. You you guys feel like. And, and I know that the science world in general feels like water activity is a better measurement for determining whether building materials are susceptible to mold growth than moisture content. And so your, your point being that you have an instrument now that can make take these measurements and, you know, fairly um, cost competitively, I would say, with moisture meters. Uh, is that accurate? Yeah, that is. And that's. That's really what we're we're trying to to be able to provide is is that option um, of you know the frustration that comes from trying to track this with moisture content. It's the frustration that led to the work in the 50s. Uh, you know, you one moisture content uh, works in terms of controlling growth in one type of material, and it doesn't work at all in another. And so you got to come up with these these specs. And again, we talked about the drying versus wetting, why those don't work. And the other thing that I, that uh, that we didn't talk about that that can be shown from those isotherm curves is that in the the typical range of moistures that you're dealing with in these products, um, there's a lot more sensitivity in terms of tracking water activity changes than than moisture content and and meaning that within the accuracy of typical of a typical moisture meter, you could have um, what you would deem as no difference based upon the the precision of that instrument uh, in terms of moisture content could be uh, actually represent a range of of a 0.2 difference in water activity when we're measuring it with a precision of, of 0.01. And so obviously that sensitivity is way better in terms of water activity and being able to see where you're exactly at. Um, and so that's another reason why going to the, to the water activity is a much better option. And, and again, it's something that we've been working on in other industries um, and, and, it, and it, the principles apply in any industry that you're dealing with. And so, we're trying to introduce that into the to the clean air and the building uh, health industry as well. Joe, I, I've got a question. A light bulb just went off for me, and, and I'm not sure whether this is where Brady's going or whether or not it's something that he's thought about, but I think the audience may find this interesting. You know, in many water damage situations, uh, the water damage contractor installs um, as much equipment uh, as possible uh, within the parameters uh, that are available of electricity and, and, and so on and so forth because they want to dry the building as fast as possible. And one of the things that Brady made me think about is that I wonder whether we're over-drying these buildings. And what I mean by that is if you had a... Uh, you know, if you had an alarm, and I'm saying his system is an alarm that tells me uh, when the red light goes on, and what that red light is is when the surface, you know, the the, uh, the water activity of a surface will no longer support fungal growth. It seems that we're done at that particular point, and we can remove the equipment. So there could be uh, a huge cost justification for their process because we're spending a whole lot of money installing and renting equipment for longer periods than is actually actually necessary. You know, I I I see what you're saying, Cliff, and I I do agree, and and I'm also it makes me think, you know, about the issues we have with respect to what people in the industry call the dry standard and, and establishing a dry standard and, and how difficult that is. And then Brady brought up the, the error, or well, the, the precision, I guess, um, and the fact that, you know, a point two change in water activity is huge in, in some huge. buildings. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm looking at one now. If they had a point one lower water activity, they would be saving a ton of money on, on a bunch of remediation that's going on right now. So that's, it's big. Yeah. I don't know. Brady, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Uh, no, I think I totally agree. And, you know, I think also the, the, and just in terms of, of energy use that the energy that's being required to, to remediate those, the, you know, these facilities or buildings that cuts that down as well, because, you know, when you're done, you're done and you don't have to try and guess or, 
or try to um, you know put in a safety factor to make sure that you're you're where you need to be just because of no way of being able to track that. I see. All right. You know what, Cliff? I think unless you have something, I think this would I don't, be a good I don't. time. Let's bring in. Uh, let's bring in, let's the, bring in the boss. What do you think? Right. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's go to the roundup, Val. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. Let's go to the, to the final round here. And Val asked me to have you go first, actually, Cliff, because I think she's looking for Dieter's music here. Okay. Well, um, my, my comment just goes back to what we were just discussing, Joe, and I, I really think that this could be a paradigm shift within the inner, you know, within the industry. Because when you look at the cost, you know, for instance, of something like heat drying, where you're trying to really change you know, the entire environment within a building. I mean, you're using a lot of electricity, you're using a lot of uh, diesel fuel, you're using a lot of propane, and, you know, that equipment is, is expensive to run. And in certain situations, you know, the rental charges can go into the thousands and thousands of dollars per day. And, uh, you, you know, there there is a point where the red light goes on, you know, mm-hmm. and stop, we really don't need to do anymore. And I think insurance companies would be pretty excited uh, about knowing, you know, when that red light is. And I think contractors would like to know as well. You know, I, I can't wait to play with these a little more. We have a, an event coming up, Brady. It's called Summer Break at Hidden Valley this year, and, and all of the, the people that help us with this show and our instructors that help us on the road, we all get together for three days up here at Hidden Valley and in Pennsylvania in the mountains. And uh, we talk indoor air quality and have presentations. And we're going to play with this equipment um, during that week, and we're going to show people what it does. Um, and certainly you and John are welcome to come out if you're available. It's uh, August 21st through the 23rd. All right, do we have our music for Dr. Dietrich Wow? Okay, Dieter, do we have you on? Uh, yes, I am here. You had to love this one, Dieter. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> my mouth is still open. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. It's what wonderful. It's wonderful. And this is interesting. When I first was interested in water activity, which is about five years ago, when I, uh, or how long ago, Joe, when we years. started to work together? Twelve Seven years. years. Twelve. You got to be, well. 2001, <laughs> dude. That's when I had less gray hair than today. <laughs> but you still have but, hair, uh, you dog. Uh, <laughs> anyway, when, when I got interested in water activity, and I knew that, you described this, if I take a hygrometer, tape it to the wall behind six mil, uh, uh, plastic, preferably uh, that you can, uh, a clear plastic that you can see the hygrometer and tape it shut so that the substrate cannot communicate with the relative humidity. We said uh, of the room, we said that several times, which of course makes a lot of sense. And of course that gives me an indication of uh, water activity at that substrate. Now that becomes a little bit difficult when you go to central block compared to a mirror or something like that. Mm. Talking about mirrors, or talking about vapor pressure of water, I'm the old mechanical engineer, and I still have, believe it or not, somewhere around, in fact, Joe has a copy of uh, uh, steam tables. If you want to know the vapor pressure of water at any temperature and pressure, man, I've got it for you. (laughs) I don't know whether... I haven't seen one other than the one that I have, which I used 50 years ago. Um, uh, I'm sure they are still available. Well, I don't know whether they are on the computer somewhere. doesn't matter. So I kind of invented exactly that instrument. I wanted to take a little hygrometer. I happen to have one right in my hand. Uh, uh, It's called X-Check. And uh, that one costs, in round numbers, I think $100, $120, which is incredibly inexpensive 
when compared to what you had to pay 50 years ago for that. And uh, I said, well, I take this one, I mount that one in a glass jar, put a rubber seal on the bottom, and then I can cover that up. I never tried it out, and I thought, and we mentioned that also, you don't get a, a stable reading within one minute or something, so you better have a strong arm to hold that instrument against yeah, the wall. that's a good question, though, Dieter. <laughs> How long does it take, Brady, with the instrument you have? Well, it it it, it is dependent upon the substrate uh, that you're reading, but For sure. uh, yes. yeah, but it's you know it's it's tip, you know we can get equilibrium sometimes in short as five minutes, but the beauty is that the sensor can be you know, can be set in place and then left there, and then you can watch it over time and see when it stops changing to know exactly when, when you're getting correct readings. But we're we're in the process right now. We're doing uh, some work here in our facility of trying to figure out exactly what the time constant is for equilibrium of different shrubs, substrates with paint, without paint. You know, that we're, we're investigating all that right now and, and hope to be able to put out a white paper on it. So you can give some guidance to the people that are using your instrument. I mean, that... It, Right. Okay. okay. Well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because, and Brady mentioned that also, you got to, you got to uh, look at the ability of the molecule to jump from the substrate away from the substrate. And that could be in equilibrium that the vapor pressure on the outside is the same as the vapor pressure on the inside, and not much is happening. Uh, that happens you know, when you want to dry something at 100% relative humidity. You're going to have a hard time doing that job. <laughs> now, the next thing, now, as I said, I like, I mean, the, the, uh, that wasn't my idea. I have, I isolate my hygrometer with a seal onto the substrate, and I see the problems there. The other thing, and that brought back some memories. I haven't thought about that in years. I was a young engineer, and we had a job at a company I'm pretty sure it was called Hankinson in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, some 15, 20 miles south of Pittsburgh. Hankinson made uh, huge compressors, and when I mean huge, that's about the size of my kitchen was one of them, or larger. And once you start to compress air, things change a little bit with <laughs> the vapor pressure of the moisture in there, which is of utmost importance. Now, I saw an instrument that had a gold-plated mirror. We had a thermistor inside that gold-plated uh, mirror, uh, which gave us the temperature, which is obviously incredibly important. And then we did shine a light. In, uh, in those days, we didn't... Uh, um, we just used a, 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 a flashlight bulb. We, we didn't have those wonderful monochromatic lights <laughs> that we have today for $2.50. <laughs> and it is incredible how sensitive that mirror was to relative humidity at that temperature. It instantly changes. I mean, you thought there was bang, and it, it told us what the dew point at that temperature was, and of course, we measured the pressure. Uh, the big pressure pr uh, problem we don't really have in buildings because it isn't there. But on the other hand, I, I would like to emphasize water activity to me, and I'm finally glad that we can me uh, measure it relatively easily, is important. I sometimes did indoor air quality surveys, and I said, Peter, you didn't, you didn't uh, give me the relative humidity. And I said, if I were to tell you that the relative humidity in that room uh, two weeks ago was 48.2%, I love that decimal place, um, what, what would it tell you? It tells you nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you, and I have my little hygrometer here, <laughs> and I can tell you what it is right now over here. But the other day when it was very humid out there, in my house it was 70%. Right. Right. Relative humidity. Now, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. Right. It was. Right now, well, right now, it's 60, well, it's going down, 59, 56%. What does it tell me? Well, it tells me that the relative humidity is that, 
and with the relative humidity, I can calculate a bunch of other things with the temperature and dew points and what have you. But I think, yes, that is we are on the right track, and Brady pointed that out. It is important what the water activity is. I don't give a damn what the relative humidity is, which has really nothing to, I mean, it has a bunch of things to do with drying, but it doesn't tell me anything about the, uh, uh, the substrate. Now let me breathe. All right, dude. <laughs> well, let, let me get a question in here, dude. Before we, I know we got a break very soon, but um, ballpark idea, Brady, we're, what are we talking for these instruments? I mean, I, I have an idea, but I'd like you to let our listeners know. Uh, you mean price-wise? Yeah. Um, we're looking at, uh, the, the price on the, uh, sensors, uh, we're about 250 per sensor. Okay. Um, the, the handheld to interrogate them is around four, 450. Um, the logger, a, a, a generic kind of logger where you have to hook up to it with the computer to download mm -hmm. is in that $500 range. If you want to go to one of the logging systems that communicates through cell technology where you can look at it from your computer, uh, is about $1,000. Okay, so you're looking at 2 to 5 to 10, depending on how many sensors you get, I guess. I mean, Yeah, exactly. That's the key point. And can you give our listeners the website? Yeah, it's um, www.aqualab.com. Uh, so A-Q-U-A-L-A-B.com. Aqualab. I certainly will look that one up. It really interests me. Good. Dieter, any other quick comments? Uh, uh, no, no. I think, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I was excited to hear about this and, uh, and learn a little bit again of uh, uh, vapor pressures and dew points and uh, their relationship to what we should be interested in when we are talking about drying. And we're going to play with this at uh, summer break, so looking forward I'm, to I'm, that. I certainly will do that. Great. In fact, I'm going to bring my jar with me, and I put a rubber seal on it. <laughs> there you go, dear. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Cliff. What the heck? I mean, we have time. Oh, yeah, why not? Cliff, do you have any final questions? Yeah, I just would like to know how much the pocket meter is. Uh, the pocket runs... Uh, you're asking a scientist here, but yeah, uh, it's well, it's uh, the price is one thousand nine hundred and eighty dollars for the okay, pocket. Okay. Okay. John, text us in if you have any anything to add. Uh, all right. Well, listen. I, what I'd like to do, Brady, is is give you the final word. We always try to do that. Is there anything you know we missed that you'd like to add, or, or any final comments you'd like to bring in? Um, well, you know, this is uh, and thank you so much for having us on here. I really appreciate it. It's it's a great opportunity for us, and and uh, you know, we're trying to uh, we're new to this industry. We're new to what's uh, to trying to figure out what what people need, and we're trying to respond to that. And you know, we pride ourselves here at, uh, at Decagon Devices as uh, you know, we what we try to do is to take powerful science and put it into a an easy to use format where people can get the information that they need and. And we're continuing that philosophy within the the building and clean air uh, industry, and and so we're a, a big part of that is the support that we are willing to provide. We want to be able to to back these uh, everything that we do with with good science. We're we're in the process of doing that right now with a project. We have a a, a wall that we've built here at our facility. It's got all kinds of materials on it. We've got sensors all over it. We're wetting it down, causing leaks, tracking what's going on, and. And we'll be uh, providing all that information um, to our to the customers that are interested in being able to do this. Uh, we're working with several different universities, University of Washington. Uh, we're working with um, with Jeff Siegel uh, um, as well up in Canada uh, with some projects. And uh, uh, so we're you know we're trying to be able to to develop this with good science to go along with it and. And we really think it's it, it could be a, a, a very powerful tool uh, for the the building industry uh, to be able to figure out when things are dry and why why these uh, conditions are right for mold growth and sometimes why they're not and to be able to more more cleanly and more uh, closely track that. I guess this will work on any material, concrete, cement. I mean, is that accurate? It is, and uh, you know, there each one's going to have its challenges associated with it. And as you get to to more, you know, dense material, 
Um, it does become a little more challenging, but uh, you know, as far as as your typical wallboard, uh, your you know two by four wood, that kind of material, no problem. Uh, you start to get into cement, cinder block, it becomes a little bit more challenging, but it's something that we're investigating to see exactly what the limits are and and what people should know about uh, when they use them on those kinds of materials. I see. Well, hey, hey, we we want to say thanks to Brady Carter. He's the lead research scientist at Decagon Devices here, and uh, you know, out of Washington. Thanks for joining us. Or a little early on the West Coast, but uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Great, thank you. Uh, all right, and uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks again to uh, today's guest, but also to Roxy V. Val Bender at the controls. Sure, thanks, Joe. Uh, and next week we have a new engineer going to try it, so don't mm-hmm. don't don't go too hard on us next week, folks. <laughs> uh, Jessica's going to jump in here next week, give it a whirl. Also to the Z-Man, Cliff. Great show. That was good, Joe. Had a lot of fun with that. And, of course, to our technical director, thank you, Dr. Dietrich Weil, but most importantly to the growing group of loyal listeners. Sorry we lost you there for a little bit there. this week. We uh, we lost a few of our live folks, but uh, I'm sure we'll get plenty of downloads. Next week, Cliff, what do we got next week? Um, we're going to be talking about, uh, I guess, you know, insurance law. And there was a big case uh uh, the Trinidad case, you know, among other things, which deals with uh, contractors being entitled. I guess the courts have ruled that contractors are entitled to receive uh, profit and overhead, and that's always been a big issue uh, in restoration with this 10% profit, 10% overhead. So we're going to be talking uh, with an uh, attorney who's really followed this law quite closely. And we'll be dealing with the subject of uh, profit and overhead and some other legal issues of interest to people in the indoor air quality and disaster restoration business. So it should be a good show as well. Sounds great. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to all of you out there. And uh, we'll see you next week, next Friday at noon, for the next episode of IAQ Radio. thinking about us and you know i ain't good at this stuff but these feelings piling up won't give me no rest this might come out a little crazy a little sideways yeah maybe i don't know how long it'll take me but i'll do my best you be my soft and sweet i'll be your strong and steady you be my glass of wine i'll be your shot of whiskey you be my sunny has been another IAQ Radio production. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.